is right oh yeah i've got a great show for you this week welcome to nine cents nine cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world and i i is adam campbell and that don't be your host for the evening <laughs> I, I don't know where that came from <laughs> it's february 24th and uh yeah like i said good show it's gonna be a long show i've got a lot to jam pack into this one hour that's going to expand to closer to two, probably. So, you know what? Cinch up your belt a little bit. Grab your glass of water and your catheter, because I don't want you getting out of your seat for this one. Uh, uh, yeah, a catheter. So you're going to drink your water, and then you're going to use your cup to capture from the catheter. Anyway, let's talk about the Oscars. Or maybe not, because <laughs> who fucking cares? Alright, so this is, I started watching this, and then I had, obviously, the show to produce, interview to conduct, so I only caught a little bit of it, and I don't really keep up on this stuff at all. Um, it, it doesn't really affect me. I wanted to see this because of Seth MacFarlane, and watching him sing and sort of do his little two-step, and his stand-up was pretty bad. I don't... I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he has a bunch of great writers. I don't think his delivery is 100%. But I have to say, after seeing that, I think he's etched his way into my top five H&H. And if you haven't been listening to this show for a while, you may not have caught the episode where I explained it. And I gotta be honest, I'm not even sure I've ever really explained it. But the top five H&H is as thus. Homo and hetero. So, everyone has a top five people that they would fuck at any given time in their entire life, right? This is like their pinnacle. They cannot get higher than this. They want to be in that. Well, you know, they some people even have contract, like verbal contracts with their spouses or, or significant others saying, hey, if I ever had the opportunity, this would not be considered cheating because they are at this pinnacle. Well, I've got a type 5 H&H uh, like everyone else. I'm not gay, but I still have guys that, in my opinion, they have reached a pinnacle where they have transcended sexuality and given the opportunity, eh, you know, I might actually fuck him. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, maybe I'm the only guy that thinks that, maybe. And I, to be honest, don't even know if I'd ever even go through with it. It's just for fun. It's not for really thinking too hard about. Uh, but yeah, Seth MacFarlane, he broke into that with his, his singing and uh, performance. Uh, he really brought Hollywood back. And I gotta be honest, I only watched it for, you know, a couple few minutes here. But he brought it back to some, you know, sort of classic Hollywood. Uh, singing and dancing. And I really, really dig that. 
I mean, he, he's got a voice that's a lot like, you know, the old Blue Eyes. Uh, really American standard. Uh, he, he celebrates a lot in his own music. So I certainly love that. And I appreciate when I see it in others, especially others of success and of worth. And I think this guy is one of them. Uh, good artist, good comedian, uh, produces amazing shows, and you can't argue with success. So obviously you may not like his brand. He's in my top five H&H. And if you don't, haven't ever thought about it before, because you're not weird like me, give it a go. You know, think if you're gay, what if you were straight? Who would your top five be if you were straight? And if you're straight, who would my top five be if I was gay? Uh, it's, it's a fun exercise. You may learn a little bit about yourself. <laughs> and I would argue that if you are incapable of coming up with a top five ancient age for whatever reason, um, you're not a type of person I would ever want to hang out with because that means you're uptight. You're afraid of others' perceptions, and you're not you're not really solid and, and comfortable within your own sexuality to be able to, you know, have fun and joke. That's not really my cup of tea, and I don't know many people that it is. Uh, so, you know, give it a go if you haven't done it already, and, you know, who cares? It's just for fun. I also just watched today Vegucated, and I don't know if you've ever seen it. Okay, first of all, let me lay this flat out. I am a omnivore and I celebrate barbecue. I absolutely love it and I love the act of cooking meat. I love knowing where my meat comes from and I just really truly love a good pork rib. I mean there's in my opinion nothing better period. Except maybe my beer. Uh, outside of that though it, I, I love meat but I, I do also care about my health I care about the environment to an extent, extent, and I, you know, I care about the other animals on the planet to an extent. Here's, okay, so first let me talk to you about the show, um, and I'm not going to go into great length about this because this is kind of eating into the showtime and I still have a ton to go over, but it's, it's a, a vegetarian who gets three people to live as a vegan, uh, not just a vegetarian, a vegan, for six weeks, and sort of just surrounds them with the vegan propaganda. I don't use that term negatively, just factually. She thrusts vegan propaganda down their throats for those six weeks, and then afterwards say, okay, well now, you know, how do you experience it? And so the show sort of goes through these three people's um, sort of through their eyes, uh, in, in their own words, and in, in some parts about their experience living this way and and reacting to what they've seen and heard and such. It's interesting. Here's my problem with with vegans and vegetarians and just even PETA people. I gotta say, I I hate PETA people, and and this is why. And here's the thing, I love vegetables, I have a garden, I encourage my children are huge veggie and fruit eaters, uh, un-arguing about the process of eating it, I mean it's something that we just, we've always done, we don't make a big deal out about it, and so they just eat it and they enjoy it and they, you know, have a healthy freaking life. Um, so I'm not coming from a position of, oh I don't like vegetables, I think they are disgusting, 
or uh, I do not like animals. I kill them at every opportunity. No, <laughs> I, I, you know, I own animals. I, my whole life I have. So I love animals and I love vegetables um, and fruits and nuts and grains and such. But I don't like fanaticism. I don't like fanaticism in religion, politics, uh, socioeconomic positions, and I certainly don't like it in <laughs> health freaks and animal freaks. And that's what PETA is, and that's what vegans are, health and animal freaks. This show kind of pulled the reins back a little bit, which is, you know, they said, uh, it's not about hating other people for enjoying their lifestyles, and I appreciated that. It was about minimizing suffering, as they saw it. And that means minimizing suffering for the animals and for humanity and our future as a species uh, because of what it really does to the environment by eating uh, so much, by consuming so much meat as we do as Americans and you know, culturally as the world that is trying to Americanize themselves. So, that being said, I couldn't help but remember back in art school, there was a commercial that was made. Um, uh, it might have been a Super Bowl commercial, but it, it certainly got a bunch of uh, advertising awards because it was brilliant. And it was this lamp in a apartment and it had this sorrowful music, and someone came and grabbed the lamp and took it outside and put it on the street and brought in a brand new lamp and put the lamp up, and all the while the camera was switching back to the lamp on the street while it was raining and while it was snowing and it was getting all sludgy and dark, and it was switching back to the lamp inside, all warm and cozy light uh, coming off of it, and and this music sort of enveloping you, and you are drawing up this emotional response uh, putting in very, very human emotions. And at the very end, it said, what's the problem? It's just a lamp. And, you know, it, it was it was brilliant because the whole time, the ad itself is forcing you to feel a certain way and then shits on you for feeling that way. It was amazing because you didn't go into it thinking, I'm going to feel something for this lamp. <laughs> it's a lamp. But you came out of it feeling like an idiot for feeling something for a lamp. And the entire animal rights movement, in my opinion, is hijacked by people. And, and this goes uh, in spades with vegans as well. Um, it, it's hijacked by the same people who are projecting their very human responses and emotions onto other things. And it's it's not that I don't think animals have feelings, I do, but they don't have cognizant capacities like humans do. And so whenever we look at these videos of, of processing plants, we have to realize there's a reason why they're like that, and we can't project our own feelings onto it. And so this whole show, I was just bitching at the TV. I, I couldn't really enjoy it for what I wanted to enjoy it for, and that's, you know, just having a healthier lifestyle and, and what that can afford you. Because really all it was doing was shitting on um, really what's making humanity possible, and that's mass production. And yes, it means inhumane treatment of animals, but they're 
animals, they're not humans, so is it really inhumane? And what is the greater purpose of doing this and streamlining it and making it cruel to the observer is that it means that we can actually feed our population, our continually growing population, by the way, and the, the massive demand of food. And this sort of corresponds like genetically modified uh, crops and, and, and how people are freaking out about how horrible it is that we're really going against nature's will and and there are places on this planet where people cannot grow crops and the only way that they can grow them is by growing uh, altered genetically modified crops so yes it may be a Frankenstein tomato but guess what that's gonna feed someone we have to find some balance between fanaticism and understanding of why it's done and it's not this grand conspiracy of oh we're all being taken in by the antichrist and, and i think that was like one of the uh, antichrist things of uh, taking over you know forcing famine around the world and then or maybe that was just the omen three <laughs> but the point being that people freak out over these things that we do as a species to continue existing in our current lifestyle and acting as if it's some horrible, horrible thing and then projecting our own uh, feelings of inadequacy and emptiness onto these uh, other beings or objects that just don't have the same response as we do. It's craziness. So, yeah, other than that, it was great. <laughs> oh, it just drives me nuts, these people. Okay, so, great news. Cross... The comic book that I wrote and I've been working with Tribe Studio Comics on is coming out. And it's coming out under their uh, division of uh, Tribe After Dark. And I just submitted final art to them and they're going to be publishing it this coming week. I'm very excited about this. And actually, gentlemen I had on the show earlier, Josh Latter of Latterland.com. Yeah. He colored the cover for me. I reached out to him. I said, please, I don't want to do this. Please color it for me. I'll give you anything. I'll blow you. Just color it for me. And he quickly said, I don't want you to blow me, but yeah, I'll color it for you. Sure. Which I'm very grateful for because I didn't really want to blow him. Um, I've never done it before and I probably wouldn't be very good at it. Uh, I'm talking about blowjobs way too much. Where was I? Oh, yeah cross <laughs> so he colored the cover for me i was very very excited about that we we put it together and it is black and white interior 12 pages of story and art and line art done by scott sheshi shihai <laughs> an old friend of mine who i've never learned how to say his name right and uh i'm really excited about it so if you're a fan of josh Lattis or ladland you should go to his website ladland.com uh, check out his comics. Yeah, he's going to have an ad in there for Rashi Rabbit. Um, but it's it's sort of adults' take on comics. It's really great stuff. You have to check it out if you haven't already. But it's coming out. He colored the cover. It looks great. The story, well, of course, I did it, and so I think it's great. But it may be me mediocre in all reality. Um, but it's a great comic all together and there's going to be four episodes this first one is coming out soon very very soon and i'll let you know but 99 cents each issue and then at the end i'll put together a sort of um compilation of the four and sell it for a, a 
buck and a half or two bucks or something like that. Um, and it'll be really good, but it'll be a while before that comes out. So yeah, take a look at it. Let me know what you think of the art, of the writing, of the story, of the characters, because that's going to help me improve it in the future. So that being said, let's go ahead and start the show. We're already, holy shit, <laughs> way deep into it. So in The Devil's Advocate, I'm going to be talking about how to be a sorcerer. And this is an essay by Anton LaVey from Satan Speaks. Great, great essay. And the Infernal Informant, the sequester is awful, but it's not my fault. And Russian Meteor blasts bigger than thought, NASA says. And the creature feature, uh, I talked to Adam Cardone, the amazing magician. That's right. I'm going to bring you a very long, very good interview with him at the second half. And I don't care, I'm going to do a Bizarre the Bizarre because I've got some ridiculous shit to be talking about. And I did a big-ass rant on it in the car, and I feel like I have to give you a little taste of that. So, there will be a Bizarre the Bizarre at the tail end of the show, and that's going to do it. So, with commercials and everything, we're probably going to be well into the two-hour range. I hope you sit through it, because it's going to be great. And if you're just coming in for the Adam Cardone interview, I do not blame you at all. But maybe, you know, at the 50-minute mark. <laughs> should be the average range of where you'll get that interview, uh, give or take, you know, a couple ten minutes or something. All right, so let's go ahead and start right now. You are your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And you are the devil's advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm an active member in the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. How to be a sorcerer. In order to perform the supernatural, you must first be able to accomplish the supernormal. In order to perform the supernormal, it helps if you are yourself supernormal. In order to be supernormal, it helps to be different. I mean, really different. This article is amazing. It, it talks about the difference between someone who is a magician naturally and someone who is a magician uh, through effort. And it really cherishes those who are natural magicians. And what does that mean? To me, it means, uh, and, and, and certainly described in this article, excuse me, it means those who do not concern themselves with uh, the rest of the world as a whole. They don't necessarily keep up on news. They don't necessarily keep up uh, on sports teams. They have a passion. And they are tunnel vision focused on that passion. That is their world. It consumes them. There is nothing else. Because anything else that comes in is a distraction from what they are passionate about. That is what makes them the magician. They are so honed in to their craft, whatever it is, that they are 
truly making magic with it. They are so good at it. And there are a handful of people that I can point to in my own personal experience that I can say, that, my friend, is a magician. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I don't want to call anyone out on the spot. <laughs> um, but more to the point, it's about your perception. And this isn't about other people. This is about you. Now, Anton LaVey does say in here that if you are not born that way, well, you can try real hard and you can be, you know, you can, you can accomplish great things still in life. Learn a trade. Uh, whatever it is in life, find whatever you like, find whatever you love, and just devote yourself to that passion. It, it's kind of ironic because the very act of forcing yourself to do that is the very thing that's keeping you from being that natural magician. But it does mean that you can still accomplish great things and, and apply yourself. Now, realistically, whenever I take a step back and I look at my professional career of choice, I realize that's what I am. I have no delusions about my abilities. I try hard to be successful. But it, what I do professionally does not consume the entirety of who and what I am. It doesn't. I think more about sex than I could ever think about design or or podcasting or homebrewing. You know, these are passions of mine that, that I care about. But as evidenced by this podcast itself, I do concern myself with day-to-day -day activity, activities as our, of our culture at, at large, really. So in that respect... I may not be a magic, a, a natural magician. Well, as a realist, I'm okay with that. Um, I, I do, you know, blend in with, with this society that we have here. But I also, as he suggests, find something that you're interested in and work hard at it. And so that's what I do professionally. And I've, I've been pretty successful in my opinion. Um, that's what I do as a hobby with this podcast and with homebrewing, and I'm pretty successful in my opinion. Uh, I may never reach those heights that I dream of, um, but as soon as uh, sex <laughs> is one of those heights, maybe I will shake everything else off. <laughs> no, <laughs> probably not. Uh, point being, we can recognize brilliance in humanity, and we cherish it and we call it out and we congratulate it when we see it. It dulls down the brilliance when you try too hard at it. Uh, when it's not a natural fit to you and you try it. And, you know, this can uh, sort of be seen as an illustrator who um, can't use a pen and pencil at all but you get him on uh, a, a computer program and he'll be okay. You know, he can do it. Um, th there's still going to be technique and there's still going to be style that's missing, but he can accomplish the mission. Uh, with, with desktop publishing, this is never more evident. But that doesn't mean you're grand at it. That doesn't mean you're great at it. And you have to be able to recognize that within yourself. Um, being a realist is a huge part of of um, self-actualization and, and in my opinion that is sort of the goal <laughs> in life uh, 
But when you see that brilliance in humanity, it is something wonderful, you know. Uh, I think objectively we've all seen it, uh, certainly in, in, in past heroes, uh, artists, composers, um, and really entrepreneurs. I mean, America itself, the only reason why it exists the way it is today is because of these um, entrepreneurs that, uh, true capitalists that were magicians of the highest order. They built this country. Um, you know, that is the brilliance I'm talking about. And certainly that's the brilliance that this article is talking about. Check it out. It is in Satan Speaks. If you haven't picked it up already, I believe it's still available. Uh, I'm sure it's still available. And it, it it's really a great article, uh, How to Be a Sorcerer. You will love it. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and jump in Infernal Format. Psst. Hey, hey. Hey, come here. Psst. What? Huh? Me? Do I know you? Hey, you're religious, man, aren't you? No more than anyone else. Listen. Listen, I got a secret. It's, it's been eating me up, and I got to share it with someone. Get the fuck out of here, kid. I don't know you. No, listen, man. It's about you. It's about your life. You're about to have what, what alcoholics refer to as your moment of clarity. What are you talking about? You okay, son? Sins are indisposable to every society organized on an ecclesiastical basis. They are only reliable weapons of power. The priest lives upon sins. It's it's necessary to him that there be sinning. Who the fuck are you, kid? I'm your infernal informant. This is Forbes.com. The sequester is awful. But it's not my fault. And this is uh, posted by Len Berman. Oh, let me see the date real quick. Uh, it looks like the 24th. Barring an agreement between Congress and the President, the unthinkable happens on Friday. Automatic cuts in most government programs take effect. It's an incredibly stupid move, especially given that the economy is still suffering 8% unemployment. The cuts affect defense and non-defense spending. They apply equally to programs that are highly effective and to those that might not be worth continuing. Uh, Dylan Matthews of the Washington Post wrote an excellent overview of the sequester. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, it's a 7.5% cut in all defense programs and 8.4% cut in non-defense discretionary programs that are subject to sequester. Some spending is exempt, including military pay, but not benefits and some anti-poverty programs like food stamps. <coughs> Can I just say this really quick before I continue on? And this is, this, this follows suit whether it's a government program, whether it's a corporate program, or whether it's a personal finance issue. Whatever the budget you have, you will maximize it and you will, you will find a way to work with it. So if we reduce our spending in defense and non-defense discretionary programs, then we will find a way to make that work and we will be happy with that. And then all of a sudden when there's this influx of money, suddenly we will n not understand how we ever got by with any less because we're making do with that. So with my personal home budget, if, if my wife isn't working, um, she wasn't working with the two children. Um, we thought it was important that she stayed home with them for a year after their birth to sort of bond, you know, with their mother and, and breastfeeding in the family unit. 
Um, we took a huge pay cut, you know, one income rather than two in the family, but we made it work and then we just got used to it. We, we didn't sacrifice that much. We just found a way to work within our means. That's sort of what people do on a regular day-to-day -day basis. Government programs or in corporate programs are the exact same. They will find a way to work within the framework given. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of existence is, is whatever your limits are, you go to the limit and you work there and you don't go over. Now, of course, our government ends up going over. Most corporate businesses go over and certainly it is celebrated as an individual if you have debt out your ass. Not by those who matter, but, you know, to our society as a whole. It's a, it's a sort of accepted thing. You will work within the confines given and you will be happy because you will be actually living. But we have such this this sense of, of, of uh, we need more money to throw at every single problem as if money itself and not human interaction is going to be the solution and it never is and so we find ourselves constantly throwing more and more money <laughs> I mean right now in, in defense we're spending more than the next 11 countries in line combined and yet, <laughs> we, we're like shocked that we even consider a cut in it. It doesn't make any sense. No matter what, and, and uh, this article does not want the sequester to happen. It does not want these automatic cuts. I do. And I understand that there's 8% unemployment and that could affect people that I personally know. But I also am a realist and I look at it saying, if you are good at what you do, if you will try to survive, you're going to find a way. And if you're good at what you do, you're not going to be unemployed for long. It's when you just sort of skate by, when you're too busy playing an online video game and not really living in the moment. That's when you're suffering in your professional life. That's when you're not focused. You need to, whatever is giving you the distraction, whatever it is, you need to be able to shut it out long enough to exist. <laughs> If you're not working, there is something wrong with you. I mean, you have to take an objective look at this. If you don't have a job right now, that's your fault. Now, there are tons of undesirable jobs that you qualify for, but you're just holding out for that management position. Whatever happened to starting at the bottom and working up again? Is that just not possible in your mind? And whatever happened to, I don't know, maybe not having a full sizable force presence in every other country every other second world country out there as a you know as an american uh, foreign policy <clears throat> i know it's crazy but i don't think we need a base in every other second world country and in some third world countries uh, that's just me let me continue with the article basically every affected function of government will have significantly less resources than needed to actually do the job agencies can't prioritize high value operations they will just have to do a crummy job across the board and see here's the other thing agencies can't prioritize high value operations they're not capable of it or they are being restricted by legislation because I refuse to believe that they can't prioritize high-value operations. 
your assumption is that they won't, but, but I think they will, and I think they'll find a way to work through it. And guess what? They'll have to do a crummy job. They're doing a crummy job now. So what? We get a worse product in government? Is it possible? Because <laughs> I, I'm not convinced that it is. I think maybe if we just cut back a little bit, I think we're going to be okay. And look, let's be honest, 8.4%, that's a big number, but it's not that big, realistically. I, I think we're going to be able to get by just fine. And because government workers will be furloughed and contractors will be laid off, uh, laying people off, the sequester will raise unemployment and depress the economy while it is still very weak. Mark Zandi forecasts that the sequester would knock about 0.5% off the GDP in 2013. Um, macroeconomic advisors warn the sequestration would cost roughly 700,000 jobs, including reductions in armed forces. Higher unemployment would linger for several years, coming in uh, on top of an even larger hit on the economy from the two-point payroll tax rise uh, that took effect in January, this is insane macroeconomic policy. It may be insane, but what we are spending, the debt that we are experiencing, is insane. Drastic times call for drastic measures, and it will be tough. I was one of those people that did not want the bank bailout. I think we should have just gone off every single financial cliff and prosecute every single banker that is responsible and those homeowners that took those loans that they couldn't afford shouldn't, you know, they should be on the street because they weren't thinking clearly. They weren't doing what they should have done and that's live within their means. Um, there have to be consequences in this world. And that's what this sequestration is. It is a consequence. It is a consequence for Congress not being able to work together. It's a consequence for our American financial culture of living beyond our means. And it's a consequence of the American system itself trying to raise everyone up on a pedestal and never taking responsibility. Let us fall. It, this is like parenting 101. Let us learn our limits by suffering. Yeah, it's going to suck. And no, I don't want to lose my job. And yes, I very well could. And it would be tough. But you know what? I'm a survivor. And if Americans are one thing, they are survivors. They fight through it. And they will come out on top smelling like roses. Or at least we'll tell each other that while plugging the noses. Um, I mean, realistically, it would suck. It would be horrible. But it's just the shock we need to get back on an economic road of stability. It's not even enough, to be quite honest. But it's essential. No sensible person of either party thinks sequestration is a smart way to run a government. <laughs> He's right. I'm not a sensible person of either party. I'm a progressive conservative if you can even mix those two together i'm a true independent i'm not a party liner uh i think i'm sensible maybe i'm not i don't know but <laughs> i'm certainly out here and i think it's okay 
If you read the newspapers, you might well conclude that our policymakers' main objective is to prove that it's not their fault, rather than to assure that it doesn't happen. This might be because politicians really are more interested in finger-pointing than legislating, or it might be because reporters would rather write about the human drama of assessing and deflecting blame, something in which everyone can relate, than the mind-numbing details of the sequester, its likely effects, and the options to avert it. The fact is that the sequester was an act of desperation. The conventional wisdom in Washington is that no procedural process can force Congress to do something that it doesn't want to do. Cutting popular spending programs and raising taxes are certainly in that category. The sequester was supposed to present an alternative to action that was so dire, indiscriminate cuts in programs that every member of Congress cares about, the lawmakers would be forced to act. Finally, a procedural measure that just had to work. Members of both parties supported the idea, and the Republican House, the Democratic Senate, and the Democratic President all signed off on it. The New York Times' John Harwood suggests that pundits labeled the conversation with the Twitter hashtag consenting adults. If the sequester weren't bad enough, other self-inflicted crimes are looming. I'm sorry, crises are looming slip. <laughs> Government funding expires at the end of March and the debt limit will be reached again around mid-May. From a policy perspective, the best option would be to simply cancel the sequester and extend the payroll tax cut for at least another year. This is a really bad time to be cutting spending. With interest rates low and unemployment high, now would be a great time to fix failing roads, bridges, and dams. We did some of this as part of the Recovery Act, but the nation's infrastructure is still in bad shape, and the economy is still weak. Meanwhile, the administration should be instructed to put forward a concrete plan to slow the growth of federal health care spending and extend the solvency of Social Security, that is, cut entitlements. The Treasury Department should be instructed to produce a plan to reform the federal tax system, or maybe two plans, one revenue neutral, and the Republicans prefer, and one that raises revenues. The tax system desperately needs reform, and the last major tax reform, in 1986, started with a Treasury blueprint. The fact that if enacted, these plans would likely have the biggest effect on deficits in the low to, I'm sorry, in the medium to long term would be a plus. That is, when the retired baby boomers will be putting dangerous strains on the budget, and hopefully it will be after we have recovered from the last recession. Or, or, or we could point fingers while the economy slides back towards recession and the government can't fulfill its basic responsibilities. And that's the end of the article. And I think that's what's going to happen. Now, I mean, let's let's be honest. There's going to be like a midnight hour, uh, air quotes, solution, which is another hold off. But the reality is our Congress is completely dysfunctional. The only time that our Senate isn't is when it's in control of one by one party or another. Our government is held hostage by those that we have elected to run it efficiently. I think, I think one of the biggest problems we have is that as individuals in this country, we want our ideals, our ideas to be the ones enacted, to be the ones represented. 
all the while forgetting that we have a lot of other people in this country who completely disagree with us. And so you can never go into Congress or, uh, okay, I say Congress, you can never go into government at any level thinking, my way or the highway. You have to go into it as an adult, understanding that you represent X portion of society and that you will use that influence as you can to sway. But more than anything else, you will compromise because that is the only way that this big machine keeps a moving. Compromise. When you have parties like the Tea Party coming up, they refuse to compromise and they break. They, they are literally a stick in the cog in the machine, stopping it from moving. And now you have Republicans on the verge of extinction, kowtowing to these uh, Tea Partiers, trying to get their votes so, so desperately. And they are extinct already because they're no longer the Republicans that have always existed and certainly exist in their platform. No, we live and fucking Democrats. Um, I don't even want to talk about it. Worthless, completely fucking worthless losers. Even when they're in power, they're losers. How is that possible? They do it. <laughs> Democrats. So <laughs> we have a completely dysfunctional government because we all think that me, me, me is the most important thing. And in your personal life, that's absolutely okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But as soon as your life starts affecting someone else, me, my neighbor, their neighbor, we have to start thinking as adults and add that important integral word of government compromise. And that's why we have the situation because they refuse to compromise. Write to your freaking representatives, people. Write to them and tell them to stop being babies. Stop saying it's my toy, mine, 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 and start working as if we gave a damn about the country itself. Then again, in recent years, that's not a very American thing to do. So just play your PlayStation. Next one, Russian Meteor. Blast bigger than thought. NASA says. And this is actually on Huffington Post, uh, posted on the 17th of February by Tariq Malik. Okay, the meteor that exploded over Russia Friday was slightly larger than previously thought and more powerful too, NASA scientists say. The Russian meteor explosion over the city of uh, Chelyabinsk maybe, on Friday, February 15th, injured more than 1,000 people and blew out windows across the region in a massive blast captured on cameras by frightened witnesses. Friday afternoon, NASA scientists estimated the meteor was a space rock about 50 feet, um, 15 meters, and sparked a blast equivalent of a 300 kiloton explosion. The energy estimate was lar um, I'm sorry, later increased to 470 kilotons. But late Friday, NASA revised its estimates on the size and power of the devastating meteor explosion. The meteor's size is now thought to be slightly larger, about 55 feet, 17 meters <clears throat> wide, <clears throat> Excuse me, with the power of the blast estimate of about 500 kilotons. 
30 kilotons higher than before, NASA officials said in a statement. The meteor was also substantially more massive than thought as well. Initial estimates pegged the space rock mass of about uh, 7,000 tons. Scientists at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California now say the meteor weighed about 10,000 tons and was traveling 40,000 miles per hour when it exploded. These new estimates were generated using new data that had been collected by five additional infrasound stations located around the world. The first recordings of the event being in Alaska, over 6,500 kilometers away from Chelyabinsk. <laughs> Chelyabinsk. JPL officials explained in the statement. The infrasound stations detected low-frequency sound waves that accompany exploding meteors known as bolides. Bolides? Bolides. The meteor entered Earth's atmosphere and blew apart over Chelyabinsk. <laughs> I feel like I'm constantly saying that wrong. At 10.20 p.m. Eastern on February 14th, the meteor briefly outshined the sun during the event, which occurred just hours before the larger space rock, the 150-foot wide asteroid 2012 DA14 zoomed by Earth in an extremely close flyby. Asteroid 2012 DA14 approached within 17,200 miles of Earth Friday, but never posed an impact threat to the planet. The asteroid flyby and Russian meteor explosion had significant difference, I'm sorry, significantly different trajectories, showing that they were completely unrelated events, NASA official says. Late Friday, another fireball was spotted over the San Francisco Bay Area in California. That event, also unrelated, occurred about 7.45 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and lit up the nighttime sky. Aside from the unexpected light show, the fireball over San Francisco had little other effect. NASA scientists said the Russian meteor event, however, is a rare occurrence, not since 1908 when a space rock exploded over Russia's Tunguska River in Siberia and flattened 825 square miles of uninhabited forest land, has a meteor ever been so devastating. We would expect an event of this magnitude to occur once every 100 years on average, Paul Chodas of NASA's Near-Earth Object Program Officer at JPL said. When you have a fireball of this size, we would expect a large number of meteorites to reach the surface, and in this case, there were probably some large ones. According to the Associated Press, search teams have recovered small objects that might be meteor fragments, and divers are searching the... I'm divers... <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? Divers are searching the bottom of the lake where the meteorite was thought to have landed. Divers are swimming in the lake. Alright, so <laughs> the reason why I wanted to bring this to you was not to prove how completely inept I am at reading, but um, honestly, as, as retarded as it sounds, to force a focus on appreciation of life. We cannot even... No one knew that this was coming. Regardless of how big it was, no one had a clue. And it flew right into our atmosphere. And... How many more of these could there be? I know they're saying, oh, once in a hundred years, something like this happens. And we do have an amazing solar system meant, it seems, to protect us from such an event. I mean, so many larger bodies that pull these... Um, uh, asteroids uh, out of our and and really shield us from their impact but it obviously still happens at quite a large rate considering um, it makes you realize that if at any given time a blast could annihilate everything that you know 
rather than focusing on a fairy tale about afterlife, wouldn't you want to focus on the life you have, the loved ones that are next to you? I mean, when I when I heard about this, I was sitting on my couch and my wife and my uh, sister-in-law were talking about it. And the first thing that I thought of was my son and my daughter. Hands down. First thing I thought of, like, oh shit. It, it makes me want to be a better father. It makes me want to be a better husband. It makes me want to be uh, enjoying life more when I hear about stuff like this. And... I don't know. I mean, that's really the only reason why I wanted to talk about this, other than, you know, this this magnificent event that shows us how insignificant we really are in this universe. But it also just forces that very satanic ideal of appreciating what you have, man. While we're here, indulge. Live and love and laugh. It is so important. Uh, all right, so that's that's really all there is for that. Let's go ahead and take a very short break. I'm going to throw up a couple commercials here. And then we're going to dive into the creature feature with the interview with uh, magician Adam Cardone. It's very good. It is a little bit long. And on the other side of that, i got a Bizarre of the Bizarre. See you there. Join me, David Ingram. They warned me Satan would be attractive. Along with my co-host. Me, the Impossible D. As we give metal bands a colossal commentary of constructive criticism. Alliteration! And throw in some witty banter for good measure. I think we're talking about uh, jism. Thanks for that, mate. (sighs) I don't want anything blowing sideways. Find us on metalbreakfastradio.com. This is Rabin the Old Bishop. DarkSentinel.dk Bugger the Cobblers And RadioFreeSatan.com Had to resist it with so foamy I'll knock it off or I'll give you a slap Uh, I like Domination a lot down into Lambert's basement and join me, Dave Ingram and Eagle, where we time travel via nostalgia to a golden age of big band swing and jazz, only available on Radio Free Satan. What's this show called? What do you mean, what is it called? You know, what's the name of the show? What, like the title? What's the title of the show? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah, what's the big deal? What's the title of the show? Look, it should be good enough for you and for any of you other generation Y's or X's or W's or Z's or or whatever fancy letter you're sitting on today to, to realize that it's not about what the title is. It's not about... When I was your kid, there's only one thing that we had growing up. When we wanted to watch a show, we just turned on the telly uh, on Saturday mornings, and you know what we got? 
Do you know? Do you have any idea what we got? No, I have no idea. Why are you freaking out? Every single Saturday, and we didn't know what shows were, what what titles were, or or what. We, we had no choices on what to watch. We were stuck with the creature feature, and so are you. Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I have a very special guest, a magical guest if you will. I'm being joined by magician, ventriloquist, escape artist, Adam Cardone. Adam, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Very good. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate your time. Totally cool. Yep. So this episode I talked a little bit about uh, magic and I cannot imagine a more uh, perfect guest to have on to talk about the craft you yourself are a magician. Yes. Um, but well, before we start talking about you and your craft, um, well, yep. before we talk, start talking about your craft, anyway, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yep. Uh, let's see here. Where to start? I mean, I, I my uh, my day job is I do uh, magic shows for private corporate functions and and public. I I have a few public things I do. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a really weird day job, but it's uh. <laughs> It's a good one, yeah. and um, I started at you know at a very early age, you know, middle school, high school, through college, doing these magic show things. And then when I moved to New York, I came to New York City with um, a degree in theater arts because there wasn't like a magic degree. That's all I can. <laughs> that's the closest thing. So, and you know, I was like sitting in a coffee shop, bored to death, working in a bagel shop, just suffering and. I made like a list of like, you know, stuff I needed to do. Like I need to do this. And uh, one of the things was I wanted to play music, not magic, music. And I, you know, in, all through high school, I, uh, I, you know, I, you know, was in like a weekend band at someone's house kind of thing. Yeah. What kind so, of music? Just like garage covers? Yeah. Punk rock stuff and some metal and, you know, just heavy, loud. <clears throat> kind. Of. So then I moved to New York City and within a year, I got this gig playing in a band and um it was kind of a wild journey we um i went to see the band voluptuous horrors of karen black they were playing it they were headlining somewhere and the opening band was this band toilet boys and they yelled up from the stage hey we need a bass player so i was like hey me 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 and i went over <laughs> i i rehearsed i did like a rehearsal and they were like you're in and within a year i mean we, we were playing with motorhead Whoa. and we got we got some crazy tours and we you know it was kind of an insane journey. We um, we got a record deal on Roadrunner. We we played at the Garden with Blondie. We did a tour with the Ramones guys. I mean, we did like you know the Cramps. We did them all. It was kind of crazy. Um, did Canada, Europe, and it was like this amazing experience. But here's the rub, you know, in between touring, I was doing magic shows and working odd jobs, and here you are on tour with your dream. You know, you're on tour with these bands and just, you know, signing autographs and taking pictures. And I was in uh, Portugal and we were headlining this tour. And here I am, like the news people were like, you know, interviewing us and taking pictures. And I'm standing there going, I'm broke. I have no money. <laughs> like, this is insanity. Like the, the, the better we were doing, the less money we were making. And it was just like a hole, like an empty hole that just went on and on. And that's when I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to the magic full time because it's a real gig. <laughs> it's like that's work. shocking wow shocking. yeah so but i did learn a lot uh from the music business stuff about show business and we still play shows and it's funny because i quit toilet boys and started playing in karen black and i did that for about five six years wow. the toilet boys we still play like once a year we get called for some crazy festival in europe <laughs> we'll go through. 
but it's a it's a horrible gig. I mean, you can't. <laughs> it's like it's like a fantasy job. Like there's like even some of the bands we were touring with, they're broke. You know, the yeah. headline. You're like, this is wrong. Yeah, you have to be doing it for the love of the that, tunage. <laughs> it's not a gig. Yeah, that's it. That's all. You know. Now uh, the magic thing's different. That's like there's actual work, man. I, I you know there's I tell everybody there's three things you need to make money as a magician. A magician, you need Italians, Jews, and corporations <laughs> because they all throw parties. That's great. That's what it is. So New York, you can live here, and yeah. Florida, I think Florida might be good. <laughs> you know. Wow. It's, so I'm doing like weddings, bar mitzvahs, banquets, corporate events, you know, the whole gamut of nonsense, you know, just every kind of event you can think of. That's great. So yeah. where in that timeline were you first uh, exposed to Satanism? Good Lord, long time ago. I'd say 12, 13 years old. Wow. Um, and, and it's funny because I was already way into magic tricks and stuff. So, you know, at an early age... I obviously lean to the left of things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which I, most of us will say, you know, it starts early. Um, and I uh, immediately was into magic trick books, spooky stuff, haunted houses, monsters. And that naturally went into, and it's funny, I don't know how many, because you interview a lot of people, you'll, you'll know the answer to this. I started with every goddamn witchcraft book you can think of like i would read every you know white witchcraft black witch just you name it i was reading it but i avoided the satanic bible and the necronomicon those two in the bookstore were the ones i was like huh, i don't know about this right so i get yeah. the necronomicon i saved the money i got it. i read it and, and even at an early age i was like this is insanity this is <laughs> i mean this is like a tolkien novel gone awry it's just, all yeah. it's just and then i finally got to the satanic bible and i read it and it was just like, finally, finally, the one that not only makes sense, it's the one that, you know, you know, we all read it and go, huh, I kind of been thinking that, you know, the whole time. Yeah. And then the sick part is it fit in to the magic show stuff. It was very similar. It actually had similar, it would say similar things, you know, especially the lesser magic stuff and, and mm -hmm. greater magic, you know, it's. It, it, it coincides in a weird way. It's like, oh my God, it's the same thing as a magic show. It's just a different audience. It's like, so, so were you already into magic at that time? Uh, performance? Yes, yes totally. 100%. I was way into card tricks, coin tricks, doing shows. Uh, you know, I would do like, you know, my cousins were having a birthday party and guess who the magician was. It was going to be me. Oh yeah. Oh, and so I was doing all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, you know, I find this philosophy that's like, Oh wow, this is like the perfect philosophy for a magician, for me, for how I've been feeling. You know, it, it kind of just it just sunk right in immediately. And I um I, I I never I never thought I would outgrow it. I never I never even thought about it. I was just like, all right, this is who I am and it just it just it just grew and got deeper inside of me, you know, it just became a part of me, you know. Yeah, and, and just from a you know, myself, a uh, layman in, in magic, uh, yep. it seems like a perfect fucking fit. Like, yeah. like, like absolutely perfect. Especially yep. after you read something like uh, the secret life of a Satanist, you know, yep. you read like his actual biography and it's, it fits in perfectly with that sort of, uh, magician, uh, performer lifestyle. So I'm totally. sure you had some uh, connection there as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. Completely. Uh, it, it's like, you know, when people ask me, you know, how does magic work? You know, like, you know, cause I, you know, yeah, I get asked every day, how did you do that trick? I was like, I, I tell them this, I say, look, you know, magic is a mixture of psychology and sleight of hand. 
and and you can't have one without the other. You know, there are excellent sleight of hand magicians who have no showmanship and don't use the psychology element. And at the end of the day, it doesn't work. Mm. Now, there are magicians who have lousy sleight of hand, but excellent showmanship and 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 understanding of psychology. They, they can succeed, actually. They can pull it off. But the other way around, it it doesn't work, I, I, I don't think. I think, and, but for me, the best is both. You know, mm-hmm. you have good understanding of sleight of hand technique, and then on top of it, you mix in psychology and showmanship, and now you got magic. You know? Yeah, that's funny, because that's that's exactly how I see successful lesser magic as well. Exactly. You know, applying it with Satanism. I mean, yep, exactly. It's it's, it's amazing that it just coincides. It's per, it's the exact same thing. What's the thing Levey said? I I always remember. It's like, yeah, I could use, you know, black magic to move an object, but why would I waste that much energy? I could just use a piece of thread. <laughs> I think I did read that somewhere. I never forget when I read this. It's like, oh my god, that's genius right there. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and and you know, and that's what ma- and that's what magic is. The other thing I always tell people, like, what what I think magic. You know what? You know what? What my, what my mission is with it? You know what's? You know what it is, and it's very simple. It's like, for me, what's wrong with the planet is people as children have excellent imaginations and they grow up, and it just it dies. It's like mm-hmm. a dead, it's like a dead enti- entity. And I always tell people, look, kids don't need magic shows. They already live in fantasy land. It's adults that need it. It's it's that moment. When a little kid sees an elephant for the first time, that that surprise and like, wow, we live in this wonderful world, you know. Yeah, look yeah. at the, you know, look at the moon. Look at it's just the, the whole world is filled with these magnificent things, and for me, that's what magic is. It's like I'm able to create this moment that a grown up totally goes back to being a little kid, you know. They get <laughs> the same feeling, and I like I, I'll never forget this. I do um, a trick that some. Some guys that do like corporate audiences kind of look down on like, hey, I can't believe you actually do that in a corporate setting. But have you ever seen a magician do like magic up close with like sponge balls? They're like little yellow or red or green. Look like Not sp- up close, but I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a famous trick. It's like, you know, you have one, you have two, they jump from hand to hand. Mm-hmm. So for years I was doing this trick with green sponge balls. And there's a few perverted jokes you can tell. Me. <laughs> there's like a few of those. So, and I did it for years. Finally, they, they, they sell um, foam sponge rabbits and they're cute. They're these cute little bunnies and like, mm-hmm. and, and for once I said, you know, let me try these. And I did it and I was like, oh my God, these are so much better than the stupid sponge balls because people can identify with the object. They're cute. You can still do the perverted jokes. Yeah. <laughs> there's more, you know, there's more with the bunnies. And it's just, it's really interesting. And I do it. If I'm doing a walk around gig at a corporate audience, I do it at the corporate gigs and they turn into five-year-olds within three seconds. They're screaming and laughing and <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, this is great. You know, I just got amazing. jaded businessmen to turn into five-year-olds. Like that's what I do, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. You know, that's it. That's It's like a very simple thing and, and as lesser magic goes, I mean, it's the same thing. <laughs> it's very yeah. similar. Well, let me, let's sort of jump back here. What do you remember? I mean, you, you said at a young age, you were always into magic. Was yep. there a performance you saw or um, a, a performer uh, that really it, set off? It's actually a book. Now, 
Here's what it was. I, I it's very hard to pick what was first because mm-hmm. it's it's like first grade stuff. You know, first grade kindergarten. Like yeah. it's kind of blurry. But I did see a magician at my school. Um, and I and I know his name. His name was Stormy, and he was kind of like a white guy with a handlebar mustache and an afro. Seventies, <laughs> you know. Oh yeah. Classic seventies magic dude. And I remember he made a kid's head disappear on stage. That's all I remember. <laughs> So oh, now, now I don't know if I saw that first or I got the book. I can't remember. It's like a blur. But I do know there's a book called Spooky Tricks. Came out in the 60s and they reprinted it a million times. That book changed my life. Hands down. Spooky Tricks. Wow. And and, and you you can look it up on eBay and there's, there's copies. They reprinted it with crappy new artwork like in the 90s. But that the, the, that book changed my life. It was It was literally tricks. Magic tricks that you can do at home, all spooky themed with ghosts and, you know, yeah. a, a mummy's finger. And like, that was it. That was. That's awesome. Yeah. Th- those two things are what changed the whole course. You know? And was, was this something that you had to work at? I mean, obviously everything in life, you know, in order to get really good yeah. at it, you have to work at it. But, but just the concepts, did they come naturally to you? Yeah, they did. Well, see those kind of magic trick books. You know, you build the little, you know, you get a box, you cut a hole, you stick your finger in it, and lo and behold, it looks like a mummy's finger. A lot of it was pretty simple stuff. The first time I walked into a magic shop, I think I was in a school trip, and I bought a trick deck of cards. So as a magician, I went through the phase of, you know, I mean, my granddad would do tricks at home. He would do like the thumb, you know, where you pull yeah, yeah. stuff like that. And he bought me a magic set that I was too young to understand what it was. Like it was too, it was over my head. I was like six and it was like a set for a 10 year old. But when I walked into a magic shop, um, they con you into buying tricks. They, they fool you and then you got to buy the trick to know the secret, right? Yeah. It's like a crack addict. You, you get addicted <laughs> to tricks. You, you want more and more and more. And so I did spend years addicted to tricks and I realized that it's all horseshit. You need the sleight of hand technique. And so when people hire me to, for magic lessons, which I do give magic lessons, I say, look, it's like jazz. You don't learn tricks. You learn moves and then you make up tricks. You know, you kind of plug them together to formulate tricks. So it did take me a while uh-huh. to learn that. I didn't have any teachers or like mentors per se. Um, so that's, you know, I kind of learned the hard way, which I'm kind of glad I did because it made me learn in a different way. Yeah. I mean, is this something that... Um... I mean, were you, was your, because obviously when you were growing up into a young man and you know, right. your parents are trying to sort of force reality onto you, <laughs> were they encouraging you down this path? It's interesting. Um, I, I sucked at everything as a child <laughs> performing. That's it. I mean, I, I, my, I, I was diagnosed with a learning disability in mathematics. Um, I, I had to ride a short bus to school. I, I, I went to a, a school that had a learning disabled program for math, you know, well, I was, yeah. I remember I was embarrassed at first and then I didn't give a shit. I was like, oh, great, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, got, I got help with my math homework. So I pretty much sucked at everything and didn't get that great of grades. And, but my performing, even at an early age, people are like, oh, you're good. Um, now, I always, this is an interesting thing. I, I uh, In high school, I finally was like, all right, what am I going to do? You know, like, I can't do anything except perform. I looked into mortuary school at one point because I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. And then I learned you had to have a science degree to get the uh, the paperwork done in certain states. And I was like, screw that. <laughs> so then I looked at, you know, theater schools and I was like, look, I'm going to, I want to go to a really good one or else I'm not going to go. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's the time. So I auditioned for this really snobby school called Carnegie Mellon 
totally snobby theater school. Really hard to get into. I got in. Um, I was pretty sure I was going to get kicked out because they kick out <laughs> half the students the first year. It's like oh, the wow. it's like the army of theater schools. Yeah, but I actually ended up graduating. Hell yeah. Um, but I, I always tell people like when I meet them, like people say, I have a little kid and they want to go to theater school. You know what? You know what's the advice? And I say, look, dude. First of all, there's too many there's too many damn actors out there, so we don't need you. But I say, go for it if it's the only thing you can do. If you have other things that you're good at, go do that, and you can do theater as a hobby, and you can still get cast in movies and stuff. Lots mm-hmm. of guys do it that way. You don't need to go unless you really – this is your religion. You know, For me, performing is kind of like a religion. You, you, you do give up your life for it in a lot of ways. It's like, it's like you, you, you commit, like I'm going to do this, and nothing's going to stop me. You yeah. know, like I'll street perform, you know, that's it. I'll go that low, it doesn't... <laughs> which I have. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So well, how did, how did you pay your way through college? And I mean, that, that had to be expensive. I mean, well, where you do just yep. side jobs I, and no. Yeah. And my, you know, my dad helped a little bit. We got, we got grants or grants and loans because of, um, a, it's an audition based school. Mm-hmm. So, and I got in without taking the SATs, which is really insanity. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, it's one of those schools that you need SAT scores, and my SAT scores would have been, I mean, the math <laughs> part would have been nothing. I would have gotten a zero. It was like, I can't, I can't add or anything. So, um, yeah, my parents helped, loans, grants, and it all added up to a shit ton of money, but I'm, I'm glad I went through it because it literally kicked my ass. It mm-hmm. was like... It gave me the discipline. It's like, if you're going to do this. Now, here's the thing. When you go to school for violin, you took violin lessons. Yeah, you know, yeah. you mastered reading music and playing the violin. Same goes with all most art forms, except for theater. Theater, kids walk um, on stage, say their lines, look handsome, and people go, hey, you're great at that. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's what most actors are. Then you theater school, and they're like, you suck because you have to do all this work now. You know, And it's like this, oh, my God, I didn't realize it was this hard. And, <laughs> really it's it's it, and it's very um it's very lex talionis um you know our, our school if the men were too feminine they were kind of like you're too feminine you know go to another school we don't want you wow we, if you're an actor you should be able to look masculine and women when they gain too much weight they would you know be like yo look you're getting fat which <laughs> is totally discriminating but their thing was like this is how it is in the real world you know yeah this is how the, the business is. It's, it's harsh and not friendly. And if you can't take it, you know, get out because. I actually think that's a great way to instruct because then you're not building up false hopes. Yeah. Especially with arts. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's what that whole business is. It's like filled with too many false hopes, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know? I mean, just, just to sort of uh, put a fine point on it here. Um, when I was going through design school, I was overhearing some of the instructors speaking as they were walking down the hall and they're um, talking about success rates of their students. And they were like, well, you know, let's be realistic. 60% of the kids in these classes are going to be working at Kinko's. And that, <laughs> that hit hard home with me. I was like, holy fuck. I have to do everything I can not to be part of that 60%. I can't skate by on no. good orator skills when you're a designer. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, it's insanity. But, you know, my, my family did support me because they saw me making money on the weekends in high school. They were like, oh, wow. You know, he can, great. you know, they really did. I, I, I give them a big credit. You know, I, I could have been born in a family. They were like, this is insanity. But 
I think they saw that this was it, man. This is all I do. Were they religious at all? Uh, uh, my mother is, I don't even know what you'd call her kind of Catholicism, but mm -hmm. you know, she'll run into the church once a month for her mother, <laughs> you know, like, oh, a, yeah. you know, like that kind of a thing. And then my father's side, very Catholic. I mean, a lot of people go to, they go to mass every day, kind of Catholic. Whoa. They go in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I did, you know, I, there was a lot of heavy handed Catholicism and at an early age, I knew it was all bullshit. Mm -hmm. I, I, I smelled it early <laughs> and, uh, I think they knew I smelled it early. Like they, they, they sensed it and they didn't, they didn't push it harder. They didn't do that. They just kind of left me alone. And I remember making a deal with my dad, like, look, after I get confirmed Catholic, I get to decide. And he's like, yes. And the day after confirmation, I remember we went to a Chi Chi's, like a Mexican restaurant called yeah, Chi Chi's. Yeah, yeah. And I sat down and I was like, okay, I'm just telling you, I had to make it very clear. I was like, I don't believe in any of this. I'm actually, I, I think it's harmful and I'm done. And that was it. No questions asked. I stopped going to church and uh, that was it. And I think <laughs> it was kind of like, there was no arguing. I think he knew. It's like, okay, he knows. Yeah. It's like he knows there's no Santa Claus and I can't argue with him. Anymore. And I honestly think most even believers, oh, what did Penn Gillette say? He came up with some new thing where he's like, I'm an anti-theist. Anti he had a, a new phrase about, it's like, I don't think most people believe. Yeah, no. They I, say they do, but I don't really think they do. Yeah, They're, a lot of it's comfort and community and sense of belonging and stuff. Yeah. And even though they'll say, I really believe, you know, it's like, if you really believed, then you'd be throwing parties at funerals, you know, you, you'd be like parties and clapping and laughing and be like, they made it. Yeah. But, you know, so it's like, I don't think you believe. So do you think being exposed to Catholicism, especially Catholicism um, yeah. as a young man, did that help you with the idea of, um, well, it is all just performance. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I just saw, I, I remember when I first got the whole like, wow, this is like a show. They've got sights, sounds, smells, you know, the whole nine yards, costumes. But I, the whole time I'm like, but they suck. <laughs> like, <laughs> they don't know how to perform. Like they need a script writer. Like this yeah. is at theater now. They got, they're just running through the motions. Like this is the heart. Awesome. Well, let, yeah. let me pull it back really quick. Um, yeah. If I may, back to, Back to uh, uh, acting, uh, yep. Carnegie uh, Mellon there. Yep, yep. So were you performing throughout that entire college experience, um, doing the magic shows and everything? I was doing, here's what it was, because that, that school was one of those schools, they didn't let anybody join fraternities, they didn't want you doing any outside stuff, because the, the schoolwork was so insane, they wanted you eight in the morning, all day class, as soon as you're done with class, you eat dinner, you go work on a crew or a show. So wow. you were pretty much eight in the morning till eleven at night, six days a week, because wow. Saturday you had you had rehearsals and shows. It really is like actor boot camp. It's boot camp, yeah. So I would do the only magic I would do then. I would get hired for little consultation jobs where other theater groups needed a special effect, a magic coach, and occasionally I would do a show, but it, not much. I kind of mm -hmm. had to shut it down for a minute because it, it was impossible. I mean, the reading and, and just work and homework and it, it just. So that's some of like the mo the, the elite of the elite of, of upcoming actors. Did they look down on that at all? They, okay. My school, I'd say 60, 70% of the teachers were looking at me like, why are you here? 
you shouldn't be here. And then the other 40% were like, he needs to be here. We need people like him here. Oh, it was a little bit of a war. Some of the teachers didn't want me in and they, you know, talked about tossing me in a minute. And then some of the other ones were like, no, 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 no. This is, we need him. Because I actually grew out of love with theater. I mean, like modern American theater, you know, going to see a play and all that. Mm-hmm. I, I stopped liking it at an early age. I knew I needed the degree. I know I needed performance chops, but I just was, you know, I, I would be like, living this pretty extrovert wild lifestyle and into all this interesting stuff. And then I'd go to class and they'd be like, okay, you're going to play a plumber today. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Like, I want to play fucking Dracula, yeah. you know, like I, I got into this from a fantasy element, you know, like I, I, I want the extreme and over the top and, and they weren't into that, you know? And I was like, Oh Jesus, this is awful. So I was constantly trying to do like, you know, we would do like scene work and I would make it into like a Bigfoot thing or anything. <laughs> it was just, they weren't into it. But awesome. There were teachers that had got what I was there for. You know, they were like, oh, no, no, no. This is, this is alternative here. This is the other side of things. You know. That's awesome. Well, so what about um, uh, the appearance of the magician? Is this something that you crafted early on or, or did you just, is this just your natural style? Uh, the I, You know, it's kind of funny. Like, as a kid, I always liked classic-looking magic. Uh, I, I never liked the party clown doing tricks or yeah. the or the boring businessman or the just there's so many like magic characters. I never really jumped on. I always liked the over-the-top, the gaudy, but I don't like it done in a cheesy sick. I like it when gaudy and over-the-top is taken really seriously, like Siegfried and Roy, for instance. Mm-hmm. People make fun of them and laugh, and they're silly and they're gay and they're they're fruity as hell. But they take it so seriously. That's what I find amusing. Um, I think LeVay once wrote an article on something like, you know, the things that people make fun of are usually the most tender and sincere. You know? Yeah. And uh, I always looked at that. Like, you know, you can get this really over-the-top magic character and take it really seriously. And so at an early age, I loved the old-school cape top hat kind of look. And... um it's funny, I, I grew the mustache in the rock and roll thing. When I was doing the rock and roll thing, I grew like the, 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 the pencil thin mustache. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I just, <laughs> <laughs> we were like sleazy rockers and it just all kind of grew out. And, and then the slick back hair I'd been doing in high school, like that was definitely, you know, I was doing that kind of thing for my magic shows. Yeah. So I just, it just all kind of sta- stayed. It's like. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So, and, and do you see that as it's just part of the performance of, of you, you know, uh, it's important to make sure you're all done up and you get out there. And... Uh, excellent question. Um, I think as a magician, our goal is to walk out on stage and immediately upon sight, have them completely submit to you and the experience. Um, when a magician walks out on stage and says, I'm going to fool the pants off of you and you can't stop me. That's not helping your misdirection technique because now they're, 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 they're looking and they're, they're like, oh, you can't, you know, it's a challenge, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't like that. I like it when I walk out on stage and I'm like, we're going to have the best goddamn time and you're going to ride this roller coaster with me and you're not going to even, you're not going to care how my tricks work. It doesn't even matter anymore. That's the goal. And I think my parents is a huge part of that. Um, it shuts them down. It's like, it's like they, I walk out and they go, I, does he really dress like that? <laughs> you know? 
And, you know, they're just like, it immediately starts engaging their imaginations. And for me, that's the goal is to, is to create, um, it's almost like creating a whimsical moment mm-hmm. and it's, mis- it's actually misdirection. It actually helps with misdirecting, you know, which actually should be called directing, not misdirecting. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Actually, yeah, you're directing their attention, misdirecting. But um, I think it's the appearance is a huge thing. I mean, huge. Wow. You know? So what about, um? I mean, do you think that all these years that you've been uh, performing and, yeah. and mastering different, I don't know, do you call them tricks? Do you call them... Yeah, tricks, sleight of hand techniques, you know, different... So techniques. techniques. What, uh, what do, you, has, do you think it's ever taught you anything about you as a person? Ah, good question. Let me think. Well, it's definitely, you know, I like if like I remember learning like, okay, I'm gonna learn this really hard sleight of hand move. It's gonna take me years to probably get this down pat. It, it made me like really think like, is it worth it or not? Like, I'm gonna put all this time and effort in, and at the end of the day, if I don't use this sleight of hand move, I've wasted a huge chunk of my life. Yeah. So it made me like get really like discriminating on what material I'm going to do. Like, you know, okay, I'm going to put the time in and, and, oh, look, it actually is worth it. I use it all the time. Um, I mean, it definitely, as a person, I would say, I don't know. That's a hard question to answer. I mean, it's all part of me. It's like everything I do literally comes out of the inside of me, my guts. Like, even if it's a magic routine, like I, I always tell like young magician guys, like when you get up on stage and people leave that show, they should, they should know something about you. You know, there should be a piece of your life infused into that show. And you might not have to say it. It might just be your outfit or your, your music or, but they, they, you need to give them a human experience, you know? And when they leave the show, they should be like, wow, I, I got to know this guy, you know? And, oh, yeah. and, that's it for me. That's what this is, you know. That's the secret, you know. Can you, uh, well, maybe, uh, what has it taught you about the audience, the public, the herd, uh, as it were? Well, if we do the tricks that they were doing thousands of years ago, like the cups and balls, some mm-hmm. of these tricks are ancient. Why do they still fool people and amaze them? Mm-hmm. Well, because the, the the psychology of how they work is is sound it, it, it's based on our subconscious and our conscious minds like you know these people in the old days figured out that we're like machines in a lot of ways you know yeah. like if you do this they're gonna do this and it definitely does that and also it it, it, it taught me how to read people I mean I have to like meet people and within seconds like okay let me go back a hair okay. when I get hired to do a show there's two kinds of shows one is everybody sits and watches you know, like in a theater, auditorium, gymnasium, yeah. they sit and watch as a group. Or I get hired to mingle, where I'm going table to table to table, or at a cocktail party, I'm mingling around doing close-up kind of magic tricks. Oh, wow. When I do that, people say, well, which is harder? Well, the giant stage show is hard to set up, um, but once I'm on stage, the show runs. It's like... I don't have to read people necessarily. I can read the the, the mass horde of people. Mm-hmm. When I'm doing the mingle, it's like improv. I'm like, I, I really am talking one-on-one with these people. And I really have to read their character. You know, what kind of a person are they? You know, here here's a little bit of a secret of magic. 
you know, did you ever hear forcing a card? Forcing uh, a card. No, no, no. You're, you have a pack of cards, and you're making them pick the card you want them to pick. Oh, yes, okay. There's a myriad of ways to do it and reasons to do it, but you're, and they don't know that they're being, a card's being forced. Well, the best way to do it is where you literally put the card in their hand. It's a timing thing. You kind of go through and you give them the card, right? Well, it's up to me to figure out who, who that's going to work on. Mm-hmm. The type of person. You know, there's the guy that you go, here, pick a card, and he takes the top card. You know, there's the guy that, you know, there's yeah. always people around. So it's up to, for me to read these people. So I've, that, that's one of the biggest things. You know, I walk into a room of strangers and I'm able to prescribe them the right medicine. Like this is, this is the type of magic that's going to fly in this group. And it goes by age, ethnicity, uh, uh, religious background. You know, yeah. everybody has different ways of reacting and responding to magic, which is the, that's why it's fun. You know, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Do you, do you ever mingle with other magicians? Yeah, you know, I have a few really close magic buddies, um, and we talk, philosophize, swap ideas. But on a on a whole, I would say most magicians are kind of um, they kind of have no sense of humor about it all, and they and they, <laughs> and, 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 they and they also, I'd say like you know ninety percent of magicians don't do it professionally. They don't they don't really do it, and I don't think they give respect to the guys that do it full time. Mm-hmm. And it's also I always thought jugglers, if you're a juggler, you wear your ego on your sleeve. People see, holy shit, that guy can juggle six balls. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's right there. You see it. But see, magic, it's almost like, um, it's like a humbling thing because you do all this work for a sleight of hand move and no one's going to see it. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> a lot of it's hidden. So you got to be pretty like cool with that. So when magicians get around each other, that's when the egos come out like monsters. Because mm-hmm. we all know how all this stuff works, you know. We're, I'm very rarely fooled with the trick, and if I am fooled with the magic trick, it's a beautiful thing because it's rare. It's like, wow, that was amazing. Oh, yeah. and like two hours later, I figured it out. You know, it's like, oh. <laughs> but when magicians get around each other, their egos all come out. Like, look what I, you know, they start showing off, and it's like, oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't care. Nice. Entertain me for Christ's sakes, you know. I don't, you know, I don't need to see the moves. I just want to laugh, you know. That's that's kind of nice. I mean, nowadays I think when most people go to see a magician or when they hire a magician, they think of it as as entertainment by and large. I think. Yeah. Um, but that I don't think was always the case. I mean, I would almost make an argument that religion in and of itself as a structure yeah. came from magicians. It's the same thing. I mean, I, when I teach magic classes, I always ask people like, "Where do you think this all started?" You know, and I, I I'm curious what people think. Now, this isn't like proven theory but right this is my theory and i've read other people pretty closely agree but you know you go back in time to the the tribal village and you've got the shaman who does the rain dance you know mm-hmm. the king says do the rain dance and and you know guess what it rains sometimes what happens when it doesn't rain um you know the king says I, i've given you all three of my daughters and a huge piece of land <laughs> where's the rain you know well guess what the guy's got to compensate he's got to do something so to show power he starts using trickery. And all through history, you can see magic mixed with religion and spirituality. Even to this day, if you go to India, you will see the street fakirs doing real things like poking themselves with needles. And then you'll see the guy levitating with a cane. And it's like, you know, one's real, one's fake. Mm-hmm. They mix the two. Um, uh, karate schools. You know, I, I, my kid was like five years old breaking boards at a karate birthday party. 
And I'm like, well, obviously the boards yeah. aren't to break, you know? I mean, but it's kind of a trick to build confidence, you know, like, look what I can do, you know? Mm-hmm. So all through history, it's been there. And the first book on card trick, magic tricks, not card tricks, but magic tricks, it's called The Discovery of Witchcraft by Reginald Scott. And it's basically an expose to save people from getting killed. You know, like, look, this stuff's tricks, <laughs> you know? Whoa. Yeah. So, and then it quickly went from serious to, uh, this is cheesy fun, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like. And that's kind of the, the the greatness about magic, though, too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I guess with anything, I mean, you take yourself too seriously and no one else will. And yeah, uh, so, you, know, you have a little bit of fun and suddenly everyone's paying attention. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Too serious is not, it's just, that's awful. That's awesome. I, 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 yeah. I do like, I, it's funny. Like I always study Siegfried and Roy, like these guys, like, you know, they really got made fun of and even magicians used to make fun of them. Mm-hmm. You go see their show. I mean, and I never got to see it live. I never got to see it live. It was over before I got to see it, but I've seen every video and I saw their IMAX movie. And <laughs> it's just like, it's so fantasy land, over the top, magical. It just shuts you off. You're just like, it, it's so much, you know? And they took it seriously, but there's definitely humor, you know? Yeah. It's definitely there. It, yeah. And I think there, there, there should be a, a difference between taking it seriously for you and then taking it seriously for the audience. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. So are there any, uh, well, okay. I mean, I've taken up a lot of your time, so let me sort of, uh, start, okay. start winding this down here, but yep. are there any people in the industry right now that you see and you just sort of look up to and you admire? Well, yeah, there's definitely, uh, in the, in the world of magic, there's all these guys that like most people don't know about. Um, one of them is this guy, Jeff McBride. He is, uh, he's like a, a, a living legend now. He's not that old, but he's definitely a living legend. He, um, he runs like a magic school and he performs all over the world. He's one of the best sleight of hand magicians. He, um, I made friends with him a few years ago and he has this show in Las Vegas called Wonderground. It's like a once a month magic party. It's kind of a mixture of like some, Elements of Burning Man and a nightclub <laughs> magic show. It's a wild thing. I mean, Whoa. there's belly dancing and magic, and it's it's you walk in and the whole room's smoking hookah pipes, and it's totally. <laughs> so he he puts me in his show every you know once a year, twice a year, and I made friends with the guy. He he's a he's a huge influence. Um, he comes from a theater mime background, which is why I always liked his stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you know you throw in the magic on top, and you've got this great great stuff. I like um. There's a magician in England called Darren Brown, who's like, he's like their TV magician. Um, the difference between him and our TV magicians is this guy's a true artist. <laughs> and the, in the true sense of the word, he's a, he's a theater performer artist. And I'm just like, I wish we had him here. But if you YouTube Darren Brown, for the people listening, you, yeah. you'll dig his stuff. I mean, he really understands human psychology and, and it's, it's really good stuff. I mean, you know, David Copperfield's got his weight. He's great. He does like three, four hundred shows a year, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. Anybody that does that many shows is pretty good. Um, I always liked him as a kid. Doug Henning from the early seventies, uh, mid to late seventies. Doug Henning was, he was like the hippie magician. Mm-hmm. Um, another cool. guy. He um, it, it's funny. He in his book, his bio, he he talks about he his big change was he did a show for Eskimos, 
they, they didn't react. And he was like, you didn't like my show? And they were like, well, we do, but we have real magic. And he's like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, there's this fireball in the sky called the sun. And, and they went through like all these natural phenomena. It's amazing. That's awesome. And, and Doug Henning was like, you know what? It changed his life. He said, my magic is to remind people about real magic, which is this beautiful world. You know, like he, he totally like changed his vibe of what his tricks were. And um, I always liked him. I always thought he was great. That's a great way to look at it, too. Yeah. I mean, that's all it is. It's fake magic. You know, oh, here's a good question. What's the closest art form? to a magic show professional wrestling oh shit yeah it really is <laughs> can't think of anything else that fits the format the audience knows it's a choreographed fight the fighters know it's choreographed but together they pretend mm -hmm. and uh and you create this beautiful experience and that's what a magic show is it's like it's um it's a neat thing the difference between greater magic and like a magic show is you know when you do a magic show you know you've got an audience watching but greater magic it, it's for you. Mm -hmm. You're your own audience in a way, you know, you're, you know, it's to cause change in you. You're not like projecting it out. You're, it's like this weird, like you're projecting it out, but it's coming back to you in this yeah. weird manner. I always thought that was kind of neat. That is pretty cool. I mean, you're, yeah. you're still putting on the, the grand performance. Yeah. And, you know, barring being in a small group setting still, even then it's really yeah. just all for you to, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, it kind of goes out and boomerangs back into you, you know. Yeah, you it's like sort of feeding to... yourself. Yeah, well, that's great. Do you do you see in your your act um, transitioning any? I mean, are are you planning on uh, evolving, or are you really solid with where you are right now? Oh, I'm constantly, you know, evolving, and I, it's like it's always going in different directions, and you know, it's a lot of it's like you know, what can I do to ramble up more work and you yeah. know, move the mountains around. But I started working with a variety group called New York Variety All Stars, and if you Facebook that, you'll you'll find us. Um, it's a two other people from Coney Island Sideshow. We all met performing at the Coney Island Sideshow at different events, mm -hmm. and it's a strongman and a girl, and and they both swallow swords. He does the strongman, and it's magic sideshow comedy. It's like a full-on variety show. Wow! So we started touring the show, and it it it. It started really well quick because we'd all been doing stuff on our own uh, for a long time. So it kind of hit quick. And then we went to the Sideshow Convention in November and we did the show and we won Best Show of the Year, which we were kind of shocked. Like, really, we didn't expect to win anything. You know, we just did the show. And so then we were like, you know, the iron's hot. We better strike this shit hard now mm -hmm. because once there's a buzz rolling, if you don't roll with it, it's that bit. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's it. So we, we've been hitting it hard. So we've been booking some pretty large venues and we have some other secret projects in the work. I can't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really, really, really crazy stuff that um, boob tube. I'll give you a clue. That's, that's the boob tube. So, Hell yeah. And then for my own stuff, I you know, last year I did something I always wanted to do. And it was definitely a new direction. But I did the underwater milk can escape at uh, the Coney Island Strongman Festival. Yeah, I saw that YouTube. Yeah, I really, really always wanted to do it, but I didn't. I didn't. I, you know, it takes a, it takes time to learn how to hold your breath for two minutes. I, I you know, long time smoker, so it's not yeah. that. And, um, you know, where do you get a milk can? Well, <laughs> you gotta have someone make you one. So I had this guy custom make me a milk can, and that took a long time. And so that was definitely the scariest moment of my life performing. It was I, a good I, performance, hands down. Like I, I was terrified. I was, um, 
the reason why I got scared was we had rehearsed it under different conditions and each condition changed how long I could hold my breath. Mm -hmm. The only thing we didn't rehearse is stage nerves, a little bit of excitement, the audience, you know, that's going to make you burn oxygen. And, and there was no, like, that was it. It was like, let's go. There's no rehearsal here. This is the real thing. Oh man. So I was scared. My assistant guy was, he, I think he was more scared than I was like, my, you know, it was pretty intense. I'm going to do it again this year and I don't think it'll be scary, but. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, and actually, if if uh, anyone wants to check that out, you can go to CardoneTheMagician.com, uh, which yep. is Adam's website, and there's a YouTube video there. It's actually really good, and I think, I, well, maybe I actually saw it on your blog. Um, yep. But yeah, the video's yeah. out there, and it's great. Oh, thank you, man. Yeah, there's like, if you go to, if you do Cardone Magician on YouTube, there's a few videos. Try not to put too many. Yeah. Um, and... Find me on Facebook, people. Adam Cardone. Adam's my first name. So you got a great name, dude. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you, man. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for joining me. Everyone out there, go check out Cardone the Magician. Do you have any upcoming events that you want to um Oh, my out? goodness. Let me think here. March 16th, I am in um, Arlington, Virginia. Shocked and amazed, the publishing book company is doing an event on March 16th. And that's me with the New York Variety All-Stars. May 11th, I'm at the Vale Levitt Theater with the New York Variety All-Stars. That's an old-school vaudeville theater in Riverhead, Long Island. And then here's the cool one. June 1st, Altoona, Pennsylvania, my hometown, 900-seat vaudeville theater, New York Variety All-Stars. That's uh, yeah. And then there's, like, the Strongman Fest. Just go to my Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's too many. I don't know. There's a bunch. There's a bunch in there. All right, so get to Facebook and check out Adam Cardone. Yep, and there's two of us, and you'll know which one I am. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you very much again, and I hope in the future I can have you back on and, and maybe chat a little bit more about magic and, totally. and uh, Satanism and stuff. I think it'd be it's it's, it's a wonderful fit, and uh, you know who better to talk about it than the magician himself? Thank you, man, so much. Yeah, that was fun. All right, hell Satan. All right, hell Satan, brother. <laughs> It has been forever since I've done one of these bad boys, and probably for good reason. But you know what? I'm going to do one anyway. I know it's a really long show. I want to close it out here for you, but I want to do so after I talk about a little uh, shum shum here. All right, I call it splashback. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know how to breach this topic yet. Broach this topic? Talk about this topic? Fuck! Alright, so when you're dropping a deuce and you hear that plop and the water splashes back at you and you got like the the watery ass in sack now if you're a dude and maybe cooch if you're a girl. Um, so you sort of get the toilet water coming back at you. I don't think it's that big of a deal when it's maybe the first one, but let's just say you have like a a, a real problem, <laughs> a stomach issue, and you're just like destroying that toilet, and it's like a grenade is going off every couple minutes, and just like you're getting fragments all up on your underside everywhere. You wipe yourself up as best as you can. You know, I mean, you're, you're like, you know, scrubbing and doing your thing. Um, later that night, your girl decides to give you a little loving downstairs. At what point is it even suitable 
to say, maybe, maybe there might be some fragments that I missed. And so I don't, I don't want you to come across a mine in the minefield and maybe not, maybe not the full, but you want it. And so you're sort of fighting with yourself. Should I tell her? When would be a good time to tell her? Do I ever even mention it? Is it expected that you're just going to get a little fragmentation when you go down there? Uh, are you responsible for said fragmentation if they do decide to go down there? I mean, they're going down there. <laughs> it's it's a valid concern. And I'm not saying it happens often at all. I'm not saying it even ever happens. But there is that thought in the back of my head. When you destroy in the bathroom... What if you did miss something? I mean, when you look at it from like a sanitary perspective, you're literally just taking a little cloth and wiping your ass. What about all of the surrounding area? I mean, you can think that you've got all the area, but you don't have a mirror you're checking, or do you? I mean, am I the only one that doesn't have a mirror that checks? And then, what if you're just not confident? But they start going downtown. Now, I'm not one to stop a train in motion, if you know what I mean. If it is happening, it's going to happen. But I do feel a little obligation to, to warn. So my question is, when is that appropriate? When they're slowly moving down? When they abandon the shaft and start dealing with the undercarriage? When... Um, just maybe when you first get into bed, because that's going to guarantee you don't get any loving at all. And what if it's on the other, f I mean, what, what would you want if you were going downtown, right? Like you want to make sure that this is a, this is a tongue friendly environment. <laughs> you know, you don't want, you don't want fragmentation. <clears throat> you don't, you don't want anything down there except for what's supposed to be down there. And then... Maybe on the grand scheme of things, it is supposed to be down there because it is down there, but you still don't want anything like that anywhere near. You, do, do you feel me? Do you see what I'm getting at? These are the kind of things that I worry about, I think about from time to time. I cannot guarantee that every Hummer I've gotten has been fragment-free. I think they have. I trust that they have. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't guarantee. Can you? I mean, what what is the like the normal ritual? Do you, if if there is like explosives, uh, do you like immediately just get an alcohol bath to make sure it's all sterile? I don't know. I don't think people do, and it, it certainly is something to think about next time you're deciding to take a trip downtown. You're like, oh yeah, baby, this is gonna be so great. You're gonna love me for this. We're Maybe not. Maybe we'll just go play Parcheesi or something. <laughs> Alright, and on that note, <laughs> that's going to do it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it, and I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the Satanet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last FM, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. 
So look for us there. You can subscribe to 9 Cents via iTunes by searching 9 Cents, and don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. A lot of you haven't. Do it. Come on. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, the source for online satanic media. Once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell. And until next week, hail Satan. <laughs>